Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. In this episode, we're honored to have U.S. Marine Lieutenant General Lawrence Nicholson as our guest. General Nicholson served as the commanding general of 3rd Marine Expeditionary Force, leading 30,000 Marines and sailors in the Asia-Pacific region from 2015 to 2018. He retired in August of 2018 after 39 years of dedicated service. During his career, he commanded at every level in USMC infantry units and commanded Marines in both Anbar Province, Iraq, and Helmand Province, Afghanistan, during critical periods of military campaigns. General Nicholson is the first general officer to be interviewed on our show, so without any further delay, let's get started. Patty, thank you. Great to be here with you this morning. So I want to start with the beginning of your career. You graduated from the Citadel in 1979 and entered the ranks of the United States Marine Corps. Did you anticipate then that you would devote the next four decades to the USMC? Patty, it's, it's one of the questions I get asked more than anything. <laughs> is, is you know when uh, when did you decide to make it a career? And uh, what I tell everyone is uh, I graduated from the Citadel, as you said, in 1979, with the intent to do four years uh, serving my country uh, and then uh, uh, leaving the Marine Corps and, and uh, moving on in, into whatever profession uh, uh, was uh, was open at that time for uh, for me to pursue. So maybe it was business. I was thinking business school. I was thinking a lot of different things. But what I found is at about the three-year mark, as I'm looking around and, and making that big decision, um, I decided uh, it was the people. The, it was the, the men and women on my left and right and the folks that, uh, that I was working with. And I, I remember uh, discussing with, uh, with my wife, uh, hey, let's just give it two more years. We'll, we'll, let's extend two years and then, and then we'll see. And yeah, I think that happened time and time again mm-hmm. and, until you reach a point where you look around and you've been, uh, been in the Marine Corps for 15 years. And, and, uh, again, but the theme there is it's, it's the young men and women that you're, you're serving with. Um, and I, I think that would come to be a theme for me, especially as we moved into, uh, into those years of combat after, uh, after the attacks uh, on 9-11. Right. And I, I do want to mention that you are one of four members of the class of 79 to become USMC general officers. Um, and, and also to your point about time flying by, it's sort of that thing where the days are long and the years are short. Right. <laughs> As a young Marine officer, what were some of the most important lessons you learned from senior officers and perhaps your non-commissioned senior officers? Yeah, I think for leadership, one of the, one of the things I, I talk to folks about and and uh, is you learn as much from from bad leadership as, mm-hmm. as you do from good, sometimes more. And I think every day, as you're out there, as a young officer or as a as as a young fireman, wh- whatever you're doing, I think you see examples where you say to yourself, "Wow, if I'm ever in charge, I'm going to do that. I really like that. I mean that that's inspiring. That's motivating. That's team building." Mm-hmm. And you also see, unfortunately, sometimes examples where, wow, if I'm ever in charge, I am never doing that because that that really uh, impacts the morale of the organization. And and so I, I think every day and I, you know, what I tell our young guys is, you know, you have a, a toolkit uh, mm-hmm. or you have a tool belt and, and you hang certain tools on there that uh, 
that you may not be able to use today, but you might need later. And uh, and I, I certainly have been an advocate for that and a beneficiary of that over, over my career. So who were one or two leaders in particular that had a big impact on your professional development? So I think for me, it uh, you know, as a young uh, second lieutenant, there were there were certainly some officers, uh, peers, and senior officers that inspired me, as well as uh, you know, uh, non-commissioned officers and and staff non-commissioned officers, our, our sergeants uh, in the uh, in the Marine Corps. Um, I know that uh, you know, as I was growing up, there was a, uh, a Bill Hardig who was was in my battalion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, was a young officer that I think all of us aspired to, to be in many ways. Uh, you know, frankly, uh, retired chairman Joe Dunford mm-hmm. was, uh, <clears throat> while not necessarily in my battalion, was, was in my regiment. And uh, just being around him and seeing how he uh, dealt with, uh, with others and, and how he problem solved was, was inspirational. Mm-hmm. So I think, and, and as you move up, I've been, incredibly lucky uh, to have been surrounded by a number of, uh, of, of superb leaders mm-hmm. that uh, have inspired me. And, and, and certainly in, in many ways, I've tried to emulate some of the things that they've done. So Leadership Under Fire is committed to fostering mission-oriented reform in a number of different industries, the fire service being one in particular. When you think of reform in the USMC and military, who do you view as one of the thought leaders who affected a great deal of meaningful reform? Yeah, well, certainly spending a lot of time around uh, you know, guys like uh, former Commandant General Miller, uh, General Dunford. Um, I saw great innovation there. I saw a, a lack of willing to accept a, a status quo for something that, that wasn't, uh, wasn't sound. And I think what I learned from, from folks like that. And, and again, General Mattis, mm-hmm. um, so many uh, folks that I've been privileged to work around was, was kind of challenging the status quo mm-hmm. and, and challenging conventional thought. Uh, and I, I think that there are, there's a certain, certain segment of our leadership Hopefully, in in any uh, organization that uh, that will will look at what we're doing, and and I used to like the the quote, "Are we doing things right, or are we doing the right things?" Mm-hmm. And I, I think that applies here because I think sometimes we end up uh, being very good at, at doing things right under the, the the certain narrative that that we're working under 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 the certain conditions, uh, but I think sometimes we fail to step back and say. Yeah, we're doing those things right, but but really, are those the right things we should be doing? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that line of, of thought, I think for any young leader, for any leader of any age, frankly, uh, the critical thinking that is uh, is required there, I think, is is very important. I do want to unpack that a little bit more, but what advice do you give leaders going through that change, that time period of reform? Because it is a challenge in the moment. Yeah, I, I think what I tried to set as an environment uh, whenever I was in command, and, and certainly I think it paid dividends for me in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and then on my last tour in, in the Pacific when, when things were starting to get interesting there again with, with, with Korea and, and, and emerging China. But um, I think challenging what we're doing, taking a look at what we're doing, 
and and not being afraid to try new things. And I think that's one thing. If 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 I could, if I talk to a group of leaders in in any industry, mm-hmm. um, allowing younger folks to to try new things with without uh, the fear of failure. And and what I mean by that is I used to encourage our guys try new things, throw it against the wall, see what sticks. Some of these things will work, some won't. That's fine. But you know, for every three or four things you try and fail at, you're going to find one that that really works. Mm-hmm. And you have to set an environment as a leader where people are inc- not only feel allowed to, but but frankly encouraged to to try some new things. Now, I'm not talking about going off the reservation and 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 doing completely things that are counter to what what the organization is trying to do. But um, I think sometimes if if we don't encourage, especially the bright young leaders that we're you know that that we're developing. If they're afraid to try anything new, if they're afraid to adjust a little bit, then, uh, you know, then I think that those are lost opportunities. And it goes back to, you know, are we doing the right things? Do we have a culture uh, where folks are are encouraged and, and willing to try to, to do some new things? And I saw so much of that mm-hmm. uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan where young leaders um, faced with problems that mm-hmm. you couldn't possibly have anticipated mm-hmm. in the classroom or, or in our in our pre deployment training, mm-hmm. uh, we're able to to get out there and innovate and try new things, and uh, and more often than not, we found some some great opportunities uh, and, and very successful opportunities out there uh, because of of young leaders uh, being bold enough and 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 frankly being encouraged by their leaders to try to do new things. Thank you. I, I so appreciate your insight on that. You were a regimental combat team commander, or RCT-5, in Fallujah in 2006-2007 during a period with considerable violence, particularly early in your deployment. What were the biggest leadership and performance challenges that you navigated as a commander at that level with thousands of Marines under your charge conducting combat operations around the clock without reprieve? Yeah, um, <clears throat> counterinsurgency is tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's tough because often the enemy hides in plain sight, and I think one of the greatest challenges we had in Fallujah, um, a city of you know five hundred thousand, frankly, was um, the enemy was was moving freely around, very hard to identify sometimes, and 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 very very frustrating for for the young Marines, and. The IEDs mm-hmm. and the amount of injuries that we took uh, from IEDs um, can, can very quickly, um, if you're not, boy, if you're not really focused on this, Marines can start to look at everybody as, as the enemy, mm-hmm. uh, which is exactly what what the enemy would would like to to have happen. And so, you know, understanding that that the objective in a counterinsurgency, it's it's the people. Uh, and it's getting the people to choose the government, and uh, and 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 in in some cases your uh, your you know your role there, getting them to to understand that that you are actually trying to help. You're you're trying to do some things to to separate the enemy. And I, I had a young officer in Afghanistan that coined the term helping and hunting, and and it was something that that is very different about counterinsurgency. You're, you're constantly hunting for the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, with one hand, and the other hand, you're reaching out and, and helping the people. 
And if you can successfully accomplish that, which is which is tremendously difficult, and counterinsurgencies uh, fail far more often than they succeed. But if you're if you're able to ensure that, that your Marines understand the bigger picture, um, and I think that was that was a tremendous challenge here because I think anytime a teammate gets hurt, you're angry. Um, you want to you want to lash out, and 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 I think we we worked very very hard at making sure people understood that that uh, you know that our guys understood that that our job was to find those enemy pockets with inside uh, the five hundred thousand people that were in Fallujah, uh, and that was uh, that was tremendously challenging. Had a lot of help, had a lot of great leaders, guys like Kale Weston out there running the government center, mm-hmm. and. Uh, but you know, any combat scenario is is particularly challenging. But I don't I don't know any are more challenging than counterinsurgency. I would be amiss if I didn't mention that your tour with RCT five in Fallujah in two thousand six was not your first tour in Fallujah. You had previously deployed there in September two thousand four and were severely wounded on the very day that you assumed command for the first Marine Regiment. Can you share that experience with our listeners? Right. It was uh, 14 September of uh, 2004. I, I had just assumed command of the uh, First Marine Regiment in, in Fallujah from um, Colonel John Tulin at the time. And, and uh, after a day of, of getting out and, and sort of seeing uh, seeing the team, um, uh, that evening got back to the uh, our camp at Camp Fallujah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was... Uh, Frankly, I was I was with uh, at the time Major Kevin Shea when a uh, when a rocket hit and uh, killed Kevin. Lost uh, an incredible officer that day and uh, and wounded me. Um, so that was uh, that was a tough and auspicious start to uh, to my my time in in Fallujah. And I was I was very fortunate to return some uh, three months later. After uh, being medevac back to through Germany and and to Bethesda, Maryland, at the the National Naval Military Center there, and, um, recovered had had enough surgeries, recovered and uh, got back to Fallujah on Christmas Eve. And General Natansky, Rich Natansky, was the commanding general of uh, the First Marine Division at that time. And Chairman Joe Dunford at the time was a one star, was the uh, the assistant uh, division commander. So it was. Like like any Marines of any rank, you, you just wanted to get back. Those are your guys. That's yeah. your team. You feel you need to be there, even if you're not 100. percent You, you want to be with your team. You want to help. Uh, and the thought of your team being in a combat situation without you is uh, is is tough. And so you do everything you can to get back. Yeah, I've heard from several sources that you were in a hurry to return to the battlefield. And the timeline for your return really was driven by you and your will to get back there. Um, what did you learn from this event and, and what kind of impact did it have on you when you returned to Fallujah? Well, look, by, by no means was, was, was I unique in that at all. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as a colonel, uh, I had the ability to, to sort of circumnavigate some of the obstacles that, that would, have, would normally stop anyone else from going back. Um, and I was, you know, able to, to get back there a little easier, uh, on my own will. Um, but I think, I think any Marine, um, soldier, sailor, airman, I mean, I think any, any of our servicemen that, uh, 
that, that were wounded and, and could potentially possibly return. We're trying to do the same thing. I, I was, I was certainly not unique in that. And I heard it all the time as, as I visited, you know, after we returned to the States, uh, after the deployment, visiting uh, Marines in, in, in hospital, um, all they wanted to do was, Hey, how do I get back? What, mm-hmm. how can I get back? You know, I'm, I'm fine. You know, this wound will heal. I just need to get back with my team. And I, I think that's a common, uh, it's a common theme that, that I saw over and over again for our young, uh, young Americans, great young Americans that, uh, you know, that, that want to get back and, and be with their, with the folks that they, they have trained with the folks that, that they've lived with. And, and frankly, um, the bond that, that the bonds that are created in a, in a combat zone are unparalleled in, in anything else we do. Absolutely. And on that note, what are some things that you learned about optimal human performance, specifically under stress while in command in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you could go through sleep. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, you know, Unfortunately, uh, nobody's getting a lot of sleep in those combat zones. And, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, we used to tell our guys, hey, we're in a marathon here. It's not a sprint. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can sprint for a couple of weeks and, and, and almost go uh, with, you know, just a few hours a day of sleep. And, uh, but by the end of it, you're, you know, you're a mess and, and you're unable to, to really um, support or, or, you know, contribute. Um, you, you've got to pace yourself. And, you know, whether you can get by on four or five or, or maybe you need six, but, but I, I would say the average, uh, the average guys were slipping four or five uh, hours a night. And, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, that goes on for pretty much a year. Uh, so I, I think that's, that's tough to grind. It's, it's tough to see casualties come in. I, I think, you know, as whenever we, we saw casualties being moved in and moved through, um, I started major Kel Weston, myself, uh, our XO, who's now Brigadier General Jay Bargeron, um, you know, we would rush immediately to to wherever the medical center was and yeah. and uh, and and spend time with them. And, and the same thing in Afghanistan with, with Sergeant Major Hoop and and the team there. So I, I think uh, I think you establish a battle rhythm in combat where you you do find out pretty quickly. Hey, I can do four hours a night. I can do five hours a night. I could do one meal a day. We used to call it snake meal. You know, one meal a day where you just, you know, you, you, because you, you're not going to have time for three meals a day. You, mm-hmm. you can't possibly go through that and, and nobody's doing that. Um, so you, you adjust. And um, I think it, it's amazing what, what you can get done that in, in terms of, of sort of your own, you know, personal daily battle rhythm in terms of trying to get out there. For me, every day was, you know, where's, where's something going on? Where do we need to be today? What unit do we need to be with today? Mm-hmm. And and my battle rhythm was comprised with an early morning meeting. Let's find out, uh, look at the overnight reports. Let's take a look at what we did yesterday and where is uh, the most important thing going on in, in our area today. And, and let's be there. So I think, I think a commander has got to be out uh, in uh, and amongst uh, his uh, his forces, and, and I think we did a pretty good job of that. There's probably six days a week we were out. I think we tried to uh, give the team a rest on Monday on, on Sundays, mm-hmm. uh, just in in terms of, of allowing uh, allowing because it wouldn't you know it, 
it wasn't just me going out. When I went out, you know, I, I, there were five or six vehicles. Um, there was there was a force protection element. So when I went out, we went out with about 30, 40 folks because uh, oftentimes, you know, we, we were under fire. And, yeah. and so you had to be able to defend yourself. But when you're doing that, you have to think, too, every time I go out, you know, I'm putting 30 or 40 guys right in the line of fire as well. But, uh, yeah, we were out there quite a bit. You paint a very vivid picture. Is there a particular action or event where your Marines displayed courage under fire that speaks to the courage of your Marines now that we've kind of established what that time and, and place looked like? Yeah, there's an amazing picture. First of all, I, I think that was a common occurrence. Uh, <clears throat> and, and to try to single out, you know, one or two events would uh, would, would be very difficult because I think mm-hmm. every day there were incredible things going on out there and uh, Marines doing doing things that, uh, you know, brought, uh, were not only successful for us, but, but brought great, uh, great honor and, and, uh, and tribute to us. But I think, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, there was a, a fight for an area called Marja. Marja had been this area that been kind of controlled by the drug lords. And, and, uh, when we got, when we first got to Afghanistan, we were, we were told that this was kind of no go terrain. Don't go in there. There are other areas we want you to to get in and and fight the Taliban and and get rid of the Taliban, but this area is too strong. We're not ready to to let you guys go in there. Mm-hmm. Um, in in uh, yeah, I guess it was in February of uh, 2010. We finally uh, we finally did get in there, and uh, that was a very very tough fight for for Afghanistan. That was that was probably one of our probably certainly was our, our biggest uh, biggest fight. But there's some incredible pictures of Marines laying in front, sitting in front of families um, under fire. And, and the expression on the Marines, and they're protecting a father and his daughter. Mm. Um, and, and in fact, I'm looking at that photo right now in, in my office here. In, uh, but it, it's one of those, it's it's one of those times where Everything that is good about who we are and what we're doing, uh, everything that is honorable, I think is captured in that photo. It's the essence of a counterinsurgency, and it's 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 our great young men and women protecting the locals, you know, against uh, against the Taliban and putting their bodies between, you know, the Taliban and uh, and the, that child. That that represents, I, I think, for me everything that is good about, uh, about our cause and, and reminds us always, you know, that, that we really are doing the honorable thing. I, I don't think, uh, uh, I don't think that's the only example. That's one that we happen to capture by a, a photographer that, that, that kind of went worldwide, but mm-hmm. I, I think that one I'm particularly proud of, but Patty, there are innumerable occasions where Marines stood up and, and did, courageous incredible things i tell the story often of of one that that happened uh before just before or during the battle of fallujah uh while i was recovering Mm -hmm. um you know about uh the number of during the actual battle in in fallujah the number of young men uh young marines and, and soldiers that were were awarded uh navy crosses for uh for their great heroism in in that fight um so I've been very, very fortunate to have been surrounded by so many incidents of, of heroism and bravery by, uh, by our young men and women. Thank you for sharing that. 
General Task and Purpose has referred to you, and I quote, as one of the most badass and combat-decorated generals in the Marine Corps and has written about your commitment to reminding Marines that the mission is what motivates Marines to prepare as rigorously as they do. I would assume that an unwavering commitment to the mission becomes challenging to maintain in an operational environment where your units are taking heavy casualties and, as you've explained the this type of environment that you were in what enabled you to continue to maintain a mission first mindset in that type of environment daddy we used to i used to talk a lot uh, i know my guys heard it over and over even in my non-combat tours is because you never know the one thing about being in the marine corps or any of the services is you know tomorrow is not guaranteed. You never know what you're going to be doing tomorrow, and, and in some cases that could be uh, moving into a combat zone and um, leaving the exercise schedule or, or the training that you thought you had as you're uh, as you're deploying someplace uh, that you had not anticipated. So I think one of the things that we always used to talk about is is you know how ready are we? are we ready tomorrow. What do we need to do to get ready to more? Because we never know when that call is going to come. We never know when that fire bell is going to ring, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and our Marines are going to be loading airplanes going into uh, in, into a hostile zone. And I used to talk uh, a leader's remorse. A leader's remorse is that you know, as 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 that time comes, you you sit back and go, man, I just wish I had two more weeks to 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 finish this training. Gosh, if I just had another couple of days to to go over this. Um, we're not guaranteed those times. We're not guaranteed those days. Make every day count. Make every moment count. Uh, those young men and women that we're leading depend upon us to ensure that, that we take care of them, yes. But one of the ways we take care of them is to ensure that they are ready to do, you know, to, to do the hardest thing they're ever going to be asked to do in their life, and that's go to war. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I think that's something I have challenged leaders on. For, uh, for decades is, are we ready? If we're not, what do we have to do to get ready? That's number one. So it's mission readiness. Mission expects us, in fact, demands that, that we be ready. Okay. And uh, so that's been a, a theme for me. That's been a focus for me is, yeah, there, there are things we, we, we have to do in, in peacetime and their administrative tasks and, and I got it. And they're all important. And there are classes we have to give on 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 voting and, and education. Got it. They're all important. Uh, but nothing is more important than being ready to go to war because that training and, and that readiness will save lives. One of the things we've explored on this show before is what happens when you play to win and lose. So what sort of guidance and counsel would you give to younger commanders who experience loss for the first time? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> nothing quite prepares you for that. Uh, when you, when you lose your first brain and uh, you lose your first uh, teammate. And, and I think it is, it is something where, you know, that you're, you're, your team has to go on. And I think everyone understands the mission comes first. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's easy to sit here and say, but 
Um, I think teams have to rally. Teams have to understand this is where leaders are so important. Leaders, you know, have to make sure that that, that the team understands that uh, that the mission continues, and that our ability to do this mission well will prevent further loss of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, protecting the innocent uh, civilians out there, uh, as we're protecting uh, our Marines, and but by doing our job well, uh, by by being you know, aggressive in, in, in terms of, of our actions and, and doing things right and doing things well will will save future lives. Uh, and often those lives are, are part of our, you know, part of our own team. So I think everyone deals with loss in their in their own way, but I think a leader has to set the tempo. And, and Patty, one of the things I used to tell my team all the time in combat, mm-hmm. I say, gang, we're going to have good days. We're going to have bad days. We're going to have a lot more good ones than bad ones, but the bad ones can really hurt. And I think as a leader, you have, you're always watched. And I think we have to make sure because if you're having a good day or especially when you're having a bad day, everybody's looking at the boss and you have to maintain, Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you've, you've got to be steady. Don't get too high. Don't get too low. More good than bad days but uh, the bad days can really hurt. Moral obligation is something that leadership under fire explores. And again, we've talked about it on this show, but I want to talk more specifically about moral courage with you. When it comes to moral courage, how important is it for organizations and leaders to instill that quality as a priority? Well, I think it's the basis. (laughs) It's it's a baseline uh, competent. It's a baseline you know, core capability, I, I think, for any leader. Um, I, I I feel very fortunate. I'd never been asked to do something uh, that I, I felt was immoral or, or uh, illegal. I've never, I've never been given what I consider to be an illegal order. Um, I don't know. I, I hope most Marines have not, mm-hmm. but there are, Sometimes in, in war, there's ambiguity. And uh, and I think, again, going back to what I talked about earlier, is uh, sometimes there's a situation that presents itself to a young leader that, that is, was not covered you know, in any of the preparation or any of the courses. And I think leaders have to make their best decisions. And and I, I think we did a pretty good job in Iraq and Afghanistan of, of, of backing our younger leaders and our Marines that made decisions that you know, perhaps a couple of days later might have been a different decision if they kind of thought through a little bit, but as long as their intent was there. But I think, um, you know, for me, uh, their moral ambiguity, I, I, I feel very good that, you know, we, we didn't present a lot of that to our Marines. I think we had a pretty, pretty black and white. We, we know what the right thing to do is. And um, those situations that come up, um, we, we do all we can to train and, and educate our, our, our teams to make those right decisions. And I'm very, I'm very pleased, you know, in, in the units that I was with that, uh, I think by and large, our leaders made good, sound, strong decisions. If there were some out there that, that weren't so good, you know, we held some folks accountable and, and they certainly had to explain why they did. But, you know, for me, I, I think, I'm very big. We know what the right thing to do is. We, we train to it. We we talk about it, um, and I I think and we hold people accountable for doing those those right uh, the, those things that uh, 
that they should be doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in, ter- in terms of, um, you know, getting orders that uh, or, or receiving orders that, that we thought uh, were immoral or wrong, I've just been lucky. I've, I've never had that. I've never been asked by a senior leader to do something uh, that I thought was was morally uh, wrong or violated my own uh, personal ethos. That's refreshing. Hello. I want to take a pause from today's episode to let you know about an upcoming event hosted by the Leadership Under Fire team. In February 2020, a thought leaders retreat will be held in Brooklyn, New York, and will focus on exploring current efforts, opportunities, and challenges associated with advancing human and mental performance in a programmatic fashion in high-risk industries. The target audience for the retreat is leaders who are currently managing human performance programs and those who desire to launch human performance programs in their organizations. Enrollment includes lodging in a Brooklyn brownstone and meals, as well as a tactical fitness and active recovery session with Jimmy Lopez and Dr. Belisa Vranich, on-site human performance historical case studies, including Roebling's Brooklyn Bridge and the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, and an optimal human performance fireside chat featuring members of the FDNY at a neighborhood bar. Registration is limited, so act fast. Visit leadershipunderfire.com and click on the events tab to learn more. Now, let's get back to the show. So I also want to circle back to something we were talking about earlier. In terms of technological innovation over the course of your career, you saw a lot of it. And your tactical level commanders had a myriad of information platforms available to them in Afghanistan that you certainly didn't have as a company or battalion commander. What do you view as the biggest advantages of these enhanced platforms? Yeah, well, let me first say, you know, something I I think is is not an original thought, but and that is, despite all the innovations in technology, despite the the UAVs and a lot of the uh, more sophisticated optics and weaponry. I still think it's a people business, and uh, and 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 for me, it was always that personal dynamic. Now, nice to nice to have equipment that uh, that is better than what the enemy has, and and again, we don't want a fair fight. You know, we we want to dominate the battlefield. We want to know what he's doing. We want to see what he's doing. But I, I think our ability to to track the enemy. Uh, to you know, frankly, uh, keep eyes on the enemy. I, I think the UAVs, and I, I think just our ability, you know, without going into any kind of classified realm, our ability to maintain uh, situational awareness uh, of the enemy, I, I think was uh, w- was incredibly helpful, and and certainly saved a lot of American lives. Your answer actually cut into my next question, which what is. What challenges do you see as a consequence of their use, particularly on decision making? I don't know if you want to flesh that out. Well, I think there can be an over reliance on technology too. Right. You know, I, I think, uh, <clears throat> and I, I, I just think that, and again, back to counterinsurgency. You know, I, I think if it's a force on force, <laughs> you know, type scenario, then, then that's different. But in a counterinsurgency where you're trying to uh, we're trying to win the support of the, of the local population. And, and let me just say, I hate the term. I, I, I've never liked the term hearts and minds. 
I, I think it's I think it's a little disingenuous. Um, I think you know for me spending as much time as I did in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think a more appropriate term is instead of hearts and minds, it's, it's support and cooperation, uh, support, cooperation, and mutual respect. Mm. And, and I think that probably that probably for me was a more realistic. Um, they understand who we are. They, they, I think the goal would be they understand who we are. They understand what we're trying to do. They don't necessarily love us being there, um, but but they understand that we're there for a short period of time uh, or a limited period of time, and and we're going to try to do all we can to help them. Actually, I do. Um, I do want to ask you if there's a story that speaks to you about the courage of Iraqis or Afghans that you witnessed. We don't have enough time in <laughs> to talk about. I mean, I'm serious. We don't have enough time to talk about mm-hmm. all the, the the incidents uh, and all the all the times that I saw Iraqis and and Afghans, both civilians and and. And, and military folks stand up and, 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 do, and just do incredible things. Um, I, I've been very blessed. And, and Kel Weston, uh, who I, I assume you've talked to, I think, and mm-hmm. I mean, the, the government officials in, in the city of Fallujah that voted, frankly, with their lives to support what we were trying to do to help rebuild Fallujah. And, 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 and and I think their commitment to us to, to help us and 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 demonstrate leadership of the Fallujah civilian population in many cases did cost them their lives. Yeah. And uh and and I think in some cases they knew it. Um they they knew that, that they were on a hit list. They knew that by cooperating with us, uh and, and even though that, that cooperation was based on getting schools open and, and getting markets open and, and getting the water turned back on, but, but just merely by cooperating with us and our engineers and our leaders, that they were endangering themselves sometimes by just meeting with us. And yet they came over and over again to try to help their own citizens. And some of them paid with their lives in, in Afghanistan. Some of the senior elders, uh, uh, again, a very, very patriarchal society, uh, where decisions were made by groups of elders, um, and and again in, in some contested areas where, where the Taliban held sway, uh, these leaders would, would meet with us, trying to trying to you know trying to get again schools open, trying to get you know uh, projects done, and, and just trying to better understand who we were. Afghan military leaders that I work with. Um, I think we, we hear a lot about corruption, and, but there were some I worked with that were just fantastic. I mean, they were just, they were, they were heroic. Uh, and now they stood up to their own, you know, some of them stood up to their own leaders. You, you talk about moral courage. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I saw some of them stand up to what we knew were, were sort of corrupt uh, elements. Uh, and, uh, and I saw them go out there with their soldiers um, leading from the front that that would have made any Marine officer proud. Mm -hmm. So yes, I, I have been the great beneficiary of being around any number of, of Iraqi and and Afghan civilian and military leaders that, that demonstrated tremendous both physical and moral courage. 
Thank you so much for being so generous with your knowledge and experience during the course of this interview. With that, what are some things that you think the USMC will do better on the human performance front in the future conduct of combat operations or in training for combat operations? You know, certainly I, I think it, it's learning to use that technology, the technologies that are, that are sort of uh, unveiling themselves now. And, and a lot of them are going to be connected to, you know, to our, our young Marines and, and the human performance, learning them. Uh, you know, we've always said, you know, we carry too much weight. Uh, yeah. You know, the Marines, what, what we saw them carrying in Iraq and Afghanistan, the, you know, the 120 pounds that, that some of these guys were carrying, it, it's just untenable. I mean, I, and I, I don't think human performance uh, is enhanced, you know, by by that, certainly. And that was certainly a limiting factor for us. I mean, the, the, the Taliban, you know, frankly, in many cases, had, you know, little motorcycles and, 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 uh, little scooters and, and, and nothing, uh, nothing, uh, maybe other than a weapon. And, and that was how they moved around the battlefield. Uh, we were certainly heavier. And, uh, so I, I think the, the mobility and it's not a new idea. I mean, they talked about it after World War II, but, uh, the soldiers load, the mobility of, of, of a force is, is, is very, very important. Our ability to respond quickly to get somewhere. So mobility, I think is a big thing that uh, we're working on. And, and I know that there's all sorts of robotic, uh, you know, uh, sort of testing going on in terms of, you know, something other than the Marine and, and soldier having to, having to carry that load. But, um, you know, a lot of this technology is heavy and, uh, and a lot of the things that, uh, that we ask our Marines to carry uh, comes with, uh, comes with the price uh, of reduced uh, performance. Um so I mean, there are wonderful developments out of technology uh, that that I think are coming. Their ability to turn any water, you know, very quickly into drinkable water, and the, the ability to communicate uh, individually, um, digitally, is is great. And um, you know, with, within a spotter platoon, the ability to talk to one another is great. But you know, I'm I'm always concerned about. Uh, but tech, that those technologies have, have holes too, and uh, whether it's it's the loss of, of, of satellite uh, capability, whether it's the loss of, of, a, of a digital interface, um, now what? And uh, are, are you still able to operate? Uh, you know, in, in our in our headquarters where where we have you know sort of the digitized battlefield, are we able to go back if the power's out? We can't get and 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 we've lost any connectivity. Are we able to still fight? Mm-hmm. And, and the answer better be yes. And, and I know that, that our, our organizations out there are, are training with the new technology. And, and I think, uh, I, I know Dave Berger, our commandant, I, I know he's insistent, uh, as we all were, about unplugging. And, and let's get back to grease pencils on maps and let, let's get back to, you know, kind of a low-tech uh, fight. And, and our Marines have to be able to not only operate but thrive in both environments. I would absolutely agree with all of those points and say that they're also transferable to other high-risk industries, um, and I'm interested to see what the future holds. So as we start to wind down today, I want to ask you about an individual. Sergeant Bill Kerr was one of the original architects of Leadership Under Fire and helped to shape the concept prior to his death on August 13, 2009 while serving with 1st Battalion, 5th Marines in Helmand Province. Uh, I understand that you knew Bill? I did. I, uh, 
I, I, I did not know him well, but but I certainly uh, knew of Bill, and, and I met Bill, and and uh, his loss uh, his loss was was certainly uh, stinging for uh, for all of us. Loss of any Marine heart, but uh, I mean certainly having met Bill and, and understanding uh, a little about about Bill's incredible background. Um, yes, I, I remember I remember that loss and and remember meeting his family uh, after after our return. Can you recall any qualities or traits that made him unique? Wow, wow! I wish wish we had uh, you know a hundred of them. Um, well, you know, here's a yeah, like I, I was so proud of so many of our Marines uh, that I met in Iraq and Afghanistan because I, I think there was, especially after uh, the attacks on nine eleven, I think there was a there was a sense. For so many young Americans, if not me, who, um, hey, I've got a comfortable life. You know, I've, I'm, I'm doing well in my, my civilian business. Um, and I think Bill was one of those examples. You know, Bill didn't, Bill didn't need to join the Marine Corps. Bill, Bill, didn't, Bill, Bill chose to join the Marine Corps because he was a patriot. Mm-hmm. And because I think he was like so many other young Americans, he felt that, you know, this is what 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 has occurred here on September eleventh uh, of two thousand one was was a generational event. I mean, this was our Pearl Harbor, and like so many, you know, thousands of Americans on on December eighth, nineteen forty one, uh, went uh, and and signed up. I, I think we had a significant number of Americans, and I met so many of them. I met Patty. I met I met kids in Fallujah that were students at MIT. <laughs> what are you doing here? It's like, well, you know, my country got attacked, and yeah. and uh, I can always go back to school, but this is important. And I mean, I, I I could I could talk for an hour about the the type of young men and women that raise their hand and and, and join service, and I think Bill certainly uh, represents the best of of who we are as a nation. Um, and um, it was a a very incredibly painful loss. Uh, for, for us and, and certainly for for our nation and, and his family when we lost Bill. Thank you for sharing that. Before we wrap up, uh, we covered a lot of ground today. I, I have a few more questions, but these will be short, and I'm also looking for concise answers. Um, okay. They're not going to be <laughs> similar to what we've been talking about. They're a little bit different. So are you ready for a little rapid-fire Q&A? <laughs> Okay, Patty, stand by. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, first one. What is your favorite book? Oh wow, my favorite book. Uh, let's see. I think uh, didn't Cal Western write a book? Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> a lengthy one. <laughs> so uh, wow. Um, yeah, I. You know, um, I've been uh, obviously based on my last couple jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been reading a lot about China. So, you know, the ghost fleet, uh, the hundred year marathon, uh, I think those are, those are a couple, you know, I, I love my middle East seven pillars of wisdom from T Lawrence, mm-hmm. you know, that's on my bookshelf. Um, there's a book by William Sapphire called Limit your ears, which I think has, you know, because I am, I'm asked to do a lot of public speaking. And so I'm always, I'm always looking for, for, uh, you know, new, uh, new opportunities. Um, 
I, I took a little divergence and I read uh, David McCullough's book recently, 1776, just mm-hmm. to read something a little bit different. But mm-hmm. um, so on my nightstand right now, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm probably a little ADD because I probably I'm not a guy who can sit down and read one book. I've got to have two or three books going at a time. One of them is really serious. One of them is fiction. I do the same and, thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have so to. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I'm about normally two or three books at a time for me, and I just hop back and around, you know, yep. hop back and forth. I think that's probably not the best way to do it, but it's, it's the way I do it. It's the way some people watch TV. You know, they go from one show to the <laughs> other. That's the way I read books. So I appreciate that answer. Um, yeah. Who is your favorite historical figure? Oh boy, um, favorite historical figure. You know, I've probably read more about T. E. Lawrence and uh, and some of the things he did. You know, in his work out there, um, you know, it's hard to. That is probably that's probably a big one. And and you know, I come from British stock, so I, I think Winston Churchill always mm-hmm. has to be. You know, I, I think I've read everything written about Winston. I so I, I'd say T. Lawrence, Winston Churchill are, are probably two, uh, and then George Marshall in terms of an American hero. You know, a, a guy that I, I don't ever think gets enough credit for what he did, um, both uh, in, in military service and and later uh, civilian service to his country. So I, I would say T. Lawrence, Churchill, and and Marshall are. Uh, or probably uh, among the pantheon for me, the top three. Okay. What is your favorite type of music? Wow. So a little bit like my reading, I, I go back and forth. I, uh, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, based on my age, I, you know, I grew up with, you know, rock and roll like, like anyone else, but um, certainly I, I've, I've come to appreciate uh you know, a lot of the, the, the country music, mm-hmm. uh, I, I've, been, I've enjoyed that. So I'd say I'm kind of a country rock guy. And and um, so a lot of classic rock uh, on my uh, <laughs> on my my iTunes and and uh, and, and certainly uh, that's probably where that's probably pretty mainstream, I guess, right now. OK, what is your favorite hobby away from war fighting? Okay, this is going to sound weird, but um, that's what I'm looking you know, for. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know where where I find great uh, solace, and I just I enjoy gardening. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but I enjoy. I grow. I like to grow food. Yeah. <laughs> so whether it's tomatoes, whether it's avocados, I'm one of those guys. I save avocado pits. Uh, I soak them in water and I grow them. And when I left Japan. Uh, I gave away to Japanese about uh, 15 uh, avocado plants that were about six foot tall that I'd grown there, you know, just from the seeds. So, I mean, I just, I enjoy, I, I, I enjoy being outside. I enjoy digging in the dirt mm-hmm. and, uh, and I enjoy seeing the, the product of that work come up in, in, in plants. That sounds, Not what you expected, I'm sure. That sounds very therapeutic <laughs> though. So I, I get it. It, it is a very very therapeutic. Absolutely. What is the thing you enjoy most about retirement? Um, well, you know, honestly, I, I don't really feel retired because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to, I'm speaking a lot. I'm, I'm traveling a lot. And, uh, so 
I think, you know, catching, catching up with old friends has been great, Mm -hmm. but, um, I am still, uh, still staying pretty busy, still staying engaged. I'm I'm involved with a a lot of think tanks in in terms of right now, it's, um, mainly focused on far Eastern, uh, type events, you know, whether it's Japanese, uh, discussions with Japan and Korea with some of the think tanks here. And, and, uh, I'm going to Quantico, uh, later in January, I'll be talking with, uh, two of the basic school classes. So yeah, I don't think everybody's got the memo that I'm retired because I, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm still moving three or four days a week. I'm, I'm, I'm headed somewhere. Great. I, I have two more questions. Who is your favorite Marine? My favorite Marine. I have two of them. Okay. Uh, I have two favorite Marines and they're my two sons. <laughs> I have, uh, my oldest son, Andrew, uh, is a, uh, uh, just selected for Lieutenant Colonel. He's out in Hawaii. Uh, he's an executive officer of, of First Battalion, Third Marines. And my youngest son uh, is a major, and, and uh, he runs a recruiting station in Nashville. So, in all honesty, those are my two favorite Marines. But uh, I, I certainly have great affection for for the many, many thousands of Marines that, that I have served with, and and, and I stay tremendously connected uh, with uh, with my Marine family. Fair enough. And I think this last question brings us back to the beginning of our conversation. What is the thing you enjoyed most about the Marine Corps? Okay, easy. That's a softball for me. Mm-hmm. It's the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the reason I came in to begin with. Mm-hmm. It's the reason I stayed. Uh, it's the reason I got out of bed in the morning. Is it was it wasn't technology. It wasn't the, the cool new airplane. It, it was the people. And the young men and women that uh, that you know serve our country, and uh, particularly those in in, in our Marine Corps. Um, I, I know it's, it's cliche, but it is, to me, the finest group of Americans uh, that that you could possibly possibly put together. Uh, give them a mission, and and just get out of the way because they're they are a force and uh, so proud to have, have spent 39 years in the Marine Corps. But for me, it is, it was then and is still today. It, it's all about the young Marines. Well, General Nicholson, I want to let you know that our leadership under fire founder and president Jason Bresler told me about you that he's the leader you want leading you in combat and the leader you want there when you're injured or in need of encouragement, among many other things. So I wanted to leave you with that today and say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. To your point about not fully enjoying retirement, just so our listeners know, we are recording this on a Sunday morning. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me. It really is an honor to speak with you and thank you for your continued service. Well, Patty, thank you, and, and thanks to uh, uh, Jason Bresler and, and the great work that he's doing here with this Leadership Under Fire. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to have been able to ask to participate. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. 
Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.